Good morning. It's so awesome to see you this morning. It's so good to be together. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you now to turn in them to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to continue to exalt in God by exalting in His Word. Our text today is going to be verses 19 through 34. Um, I'll spend a couple of weeks here. I went back and forth on whether I should spend a couple of weeks here or 27 weeks here. I decided to spend two. While you're turning there, I'll just say thank you for those of you who prayed. We did have a wonderful time at the conference uh, that we went to, the Bethlehem uh, Conference for Pastors, the Serious Joy Conference, they call it. Um, the six of us from the church went, I think six or seven of us went from the church and it was a great time of encouragement, uh, great preaching, um, good times together as we thought about the church. And if you want to know more about that, I invite you to listen to our podcast that dropped on Friday. And you should listen to that all the time since we drop one every Friday. But we talked about it, and we talked about the big lessons, and I think you will find it encouraging. Okay, so the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descending, descend from heaven like a dove, and, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you today, desirous to see your work in our lives. We want you to challenge us with your word and encourage us and uplift us and give us strength for this week. And Lord, I pray that you'd help me not to know anything up here except for Christ and him crucified. And I pray that we would all be challenged with the testimony of John the Baptist. We'd be swayed by it ourselves and that we would seek to be that kind of testimony to those around us. We love you. We love the gospel. 
We love the hope that we have in Christ. We love that we are your children. I pray that you'd help me to preach this morning. In my weakness, even in my physical frailty as I'm coming down with something, I pray that you would powerfully work here for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So on the first Lord's Day of each month, we do two special things. One is a newer tradition. The other goes back as long as anyone can remember. We partake of the Lord's Supper together. We've done that forever on the first Sunday of the month. We remember the work of Christ through this ordinance. We're going to do that today. And the other, which is more recent, but I hope will become a long-standing tradition, is that someone will share their testimony That is, they share what they have seen and experienced regarding God's work in their life. We will hear from someone today. I I can't wait. You know why we do that, that that second part? We do that because there is something very helpful about eyewitness testimony. It's one thing, one very necessary thing to hear someone preach and proclaim the truths of God's word each Sunday. This is necessary in the life of the church because we want to be a people who are shaped completely by God's Word. It's quite another thing, one very helpful thing, to hear someone share how God has personally worked in their lives, in their life. The way they have found God faithful, specifically, like in their life through the years. Our hope is that you will find the two together to be rich and edifying. As you hear week in and week out the word of God proclaimed as we put our noses in the book together to learn what God's word says, we should grow and be edified and be shaped by his word. And as we hear and often see the testimonies of people who have been shaped by this word, shaped by the gospel, as God by his grace has opened their minds and given them life, we should grow, that should grow us too in our faith together as Christians. So that's what, what we, why we today and in several minutes, why a brother will come up here and share to this pulpit and share his testimony. Eyewitness testimony is a very powerful thing. And I think that's why John, the son of Zebedee, the writer of the gospel of John, began this gospel this way. He is very interested in, the, in testimony. In fact, the, the entire gospel is a testimony. This, the gospel of John is John's testimony. He says it himself. He records very specific testimonies all through the gospel, beginning with the testimony of John the Baptist. We've already been introduced to John the Baptist. He's in the prologue already, verses 1 through 18. We spent time on him as, as, already as well. You might recall. In verses 7 through 8, I, we talked about him. You might recall that I said that John's brightness was more like the brightness of a sunrise window than it is like the sunrise. More like the window than the sunrise. He's not the source of light. He transmits the light. John shined the light of Christ. You can see that in verses 7 and 8. So we've already been introduced to this major witness. And today and next week, Lord willing... The witness is back on the stand, and we're going to hear what he has to say. My prayer is that this testimony does two things for us. 
First, I pray that we find it very compelling. Like a, like a jury hearing a witness, I pray that we're swayed by John the Baptist's testimony, unabashedly. I pray that we would believe what John the Baptist has to say about Jesus Christ. Like a jury hearing from the most credible witness, I hope that we are convinced that his testimony is true and that our faith would therefore grow confidence and Christ would grow stronger. And second, I hope that this will, in one sense, challenge us to consider our own testimonies, how we share, how our words and our actions and our lives show others the truthfulness of Christ. As I said a few weeks ago, there is a sense in which we've all been called to the stand. We've all been called to testify. And the world, our neighbors, our children, they're listening to our words. They're watching our actions. And I hope that we will leave here resolved to be faithful, to be faithful in the way that we testify. So those are my two goals this morning as we hear John's testimony. The setting is that John is getting noticed by the religious leaders, John the Baptist. He's baptizing in the Jordan River, and people are flocking to be baptized by him. This is a new thing, and very public, and it caught everyone off guard. So the Jews, which I think he means the Jewish leaders, sent some priests and Levites, people who were very involved in the religious life of Israel. And they sent him to John to find out who he was and what he was doing. And the general question, which you can see at the end of verse 19, is who are you? And you can tell from the first part of the confession that they are wondering if John the Baptist is the promised Messiah. And so some background, it's helpful. In this first century life in Palestine, it was one of hopeful anticipation of the Messiah. You see, Israel was being oppressed by Rome. And they talked about a Messiah coming. They were holding on to the hope of God's promise that he would send a deliverer. So they're waiting. They're waiting for the Messiah. And when they saw John baptizing and, and crowds responding, flocking to him, they wondered, man, is this, is this him? Is this the one? And I love verse 20, Just diving into John's testimony. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. And I think that's helpful because at least a few parts of his confessions are, in fact, denials. But even those denials are his confessions. He is positively telling us both who Jesus is and who he is. And to do that, he has, he has to accurately say who he is not. There are at least four I am nots in this passage. Today we're focusing mostly on verses 19 through 28. Next week, Lord willing, Verses 29 through 34. Four I am nots here. And then there's a couple of I am's from John. I don't know. Do you remember that party game? You ever played that party game where you put this, somebody puts a, a, a word on a card taped to your back. You can't see it, but you go around asking questions. Who am I? Am I, am I a movie star? Am I, a, am I edible? You know, that kind of thing. And you're just asking questions, trying to determine what the card is on the back that's sort of what this is. We hear first a few wrong guesses and then a few right ones as far as John is concerned. John makes it clear right away that he is not the Christ. He's not the Christ. That's the first I am not. And the writer of this gospel has made it clear already. So this is ground covered already. John is not the light. Jesus is the light. He shines the light. He testifies to the light. He is not the Christ. 
The second two I am nots are new ground. He asks him if they ask him if he's the Elijah or if he's the prophet. So let's take those in reverse order. So in Deuteronomy 18:15, Moses said, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, a prophet like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen." Now this verse is cited at least twice in the book of Acts, once by Peter and once by Stephen, and both make it clear that the prophet promised by Moses, prophet like Moses, promised in Deuteronomy is in fact Jesus. So they were asking in a roundabout way whether whether John was the Christ, even though I don't know that they knew that they were asking it that way. They knew of this prophecy, but maybe they didn't put it all together that that's the Christ. And so John knew, and he said, no, I'm not the prophet. The prophet is Jesus. And then they ask here if he was Elijah. And that might be confusing to you. Why are they asking if he's Elijah? But the reason they're asking is because there's a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4. And by the way, if you're interested more about the book of Malachi, we have an awesome class going on in the middle hour on Malachi. But today I'm going to read Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6, which says, Behold... I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, God promised to send Elijah before the awesome day of the Lord, and they asked John the Baptist, it's a legit question, right? Are you Elijah? And he gives his second, I am not. I am not Elijah. And this, this actually presents an issue for us, doesn't it? If you're familiar with some other passages in the New Testament, you, you know that the angel announced John the Baptist's birth to his parents and connects John the Baptist with Elijah. And even Jesus makes that connection, doesn't he? John the Baptist and Elijah. So in Luke 1.17, the angel told Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, that John, his son that was going to be born, will go forth in the spirit of Elijah. And both Matthew and Mark record Jesus saying the same kind of thing about John the Baptist. This, here's, a, here's Mark 9, 13. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to it. I tell you that Elijah... He's talking about John the Baptist. I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. So what gives? I mean, why did John deny that he's Elijah in our passage when the angel said John would go forth in the spirit of Elijah and Jesus himself said, Elijah's come. They seem to call him Elijah, but when these Jewish leaders ask John if he's Elijah, he says, I am not. So is John confused? Is there a a contradiction in the Bible? No, I don't think so at all. I believe He, John, understands his role perfectly. He's not confused. We'll see that in a moment. John could clearly see himself in the Old Testament prophecy. He knew who he was and what he was about. But I think those who looked at Malachi 4, 5, and 6, and then looked to John, were confused in the way that they asked it. They perhaps were asking if John the Baptist was the very same person who in 2 Kings 2 was taken up in a whirlwind by God. 
They were asking if John was literally Elijah returned from heaven. Neither the angel announcing John's birth nor Jesus meant that John the Baptist was literally Elijah. The angel said that he would go forth in the spirit of Elijah. Not that he would be Elijah himself returning, and there's no reason to think that John meant anything other than, that Jesus meant anything other than that. So John denied being the Old Testament prophet that was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, even though his role would be an Elijah role. I hope that helps you. You know, we, we often have to wrestle with things that seem like tensions in the Bible, don't we? There are no contradictions in the Bible. Many people say the Bible is full of contradictions. Usually they can't name even one, but they say the Bible is full of contradictions. The Bible has several tensions that we have to wrestle with and that take a little bit of effort to try to understand, but the Bible has no contradictions. It is perfect. It is infallible. It is without error. We just have to work sometimes to understand it. So John is not the Christ, he is not the prophet, and he is not Elijah. So who is he? So let's look at a few positive affirmations that John makes. Look at verse 23. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So again, John's not confused even a little bit about his role about who he is and what he has been sent to do, his mission. He, he, his appeal here is to the Old Testament, Isaiah 40, verse 3. And that helps us to see that John was crystal clear on both points. His mission was to make straight the paths of the Lord. My favorite all-time sport is curling. I mean, it's not really, but you've never heard anyone say that. And I want to say one thing novel today. And so that's the one thing novel I'll say. My favorite sport is curling. Have you ever watched curling? Anyone watch curling? <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> uh, it's intriguing to me to watch and try to figure out the goal of it. But. There's this main person, right, who's sliding this granite stone across the ice, and it's supposed to go to the target and stop at the target, and the target's called the house. Did you know that? I looked all this up as I was... It stops there, and you can knock each other's out and all of that. But uh, that's one thing. I want you to think about the guy with the broom. Isn't that intriguing that there's a guy with a broom at the Olympics? Sometimes, and he's sweeping. He sweeps the ice in front of the stone, the granite stone, the path that the stone is taking. And he does so because the friction of the broom melts the ice a tad and makes it slide faster. I, I, I knew that since I was a child. <laughs> That's what John was born for to be the guy with the broom sweeping in front of that stone. He would prepare the way. He would go before and warm the ice of people's hearts so that they would be more ready to receive the Christ. He came onto the scene. God sent him onto the scene to do that, to preach that all men everywhere should repent. And those who responded came to him to be baptized. They recognized that they were sinners They recognized that they were in trouble with God and that they were in need of His grace. 
This is how John prepared the way. Jesus came. He had a different mission. He came to provide the grace to those sinners, us sinners who are in need. John prepared the way. Jesus provided grace. So John knew exactly who he was. He knew what his mission was in this world. He knew the ultimate identity of the one for whom he was preparing the way. He knew that he was coming to prepare the way of the Lord. Look, look with me. Why don't you look with me at Isaiah 43, would you? The Old Testament. Something interesting here. I think you'll find helpful. So he quotes it almost verbatim. I'm happy to wait as I hear pages turning because I love that sound. Isaiah 43 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's helpful if you've wrestled with seeing the deity of Christ in the Bible. Some, sometimes people have struggled to see the deity of Christ or, or tried to help someone else see the deity of Christ in the Bible. Perhaps someone who's come to your door knocking, proclaiming a different Christ, denying his deity, his, his, that he is truly God. Of course, we see in the Bible that Jesus, we see it everywhere in the New Testament, that Jesus is truly God, very powerfully in the Gospel of John, everywhere in the New Testament. I've already spent some time on it, showing that from earlier in his Gospel, namely verse 1, the word was God. But it's here in John 1.23 as well, and that's because it's a citation of Isaiah 40, verse 3. If you notice, since you're turned to Isaiah 43, that the word Lord there is in small caps. You know, the first one's a regular capital, and then the rest are small caps. It's that way in the ESV, if that's what you're reading it from, and I think most other English translations. If you were to go to the preface of the ESV and read the section entitled, The Translation of Special Terms, you would see that when the Lord is, when you see Lord in the Old Testament written like that in small caps, it is the translation of a special, the special personal name of God, which we sometimes pronounce Yahweh or Jehovah. Whatever, whenever you see Lord written like that in the ESV, it's a translation of the word Yahweh. And many other translations do this too. So Isaiah 43, 40 verse 3 is saying literally that the voice crying in the wilderness was to prepare the way for Yahweh. That was John's mission. And then we have to ask, for whom specifically was John the Baptist preparing the way? And of course, it was for Jesus. He was preparing the way for the Lord Jesus who is truly God, who is Yahweh. Do you see? I, I think that's very cool. Doesn't that just make you want to go to seminary and learn Hebrew or go home and read the preface of your English translation? He is Yahweh. 
John was sent to prepare the way for the Lord. He was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. The Father was sending his stone into the world, and the stone would perfectly land on its mark. And to prepare the way to sweep the ice in front of his path, he sent John the Baptist. John knew exactly why he had come, and he knew who had sent him, and he knew his purpose in life. He knew the one for whom he was preparing the way, and he was testifying, testifying to all of that. John was not the Christ. He was not Elijah. John was the one crying in the wilderness. I, note with me that John's, when John sees himself in the Old Testament, he does not even see a name attached with it. He sees the one crying in the wilderness, the voice crying in the wilderness. He's an unnamed way preparer, the unnamed guy with the broom sweeping the way in front of Jesus, the guy who would later say he must increase and I must decrease. The man who lived his life to point others, this is why John the Baptist lived his life, to point others to the supremacy and the glory and the unsearchable riches of Christ. That was John's mission. I mean, note another I am not in this passage. It's in verse 27. I baptize with water, John said back in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 27. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal, here it is, I am not worthy to untie. John knew who he was. He knew who he was in relation to the one who stands among you, who you do not know, who comes after me. So he knew the worthiness of Jesus, and he was very aware of his own unworthiness. That's the right sort of humility. That is the right sort of humility. It's not the sort of self-deprecating false humility that we often put out there, ironically, to make us look better. This is the right sort. John simply understood his own unworthiness and the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Oh, how I want to be like John. Don't you? Do you want to be like that? As I've studied this week, this passage, I pray, Lord, make me like John. Help me to kill the impulse in my heart to point people to me. Help me to kill the desire to make a name for myself. That's how we ought to be as a church. Help us Kill the desire to make a name for ourselves and stoke the fire of our heart to make a name for Jesus Christ, make much of the name of Christ. Oh, how I want to live my life to testify to the unsearchable riches of Christ, to point others away from me and to the love and the saving grace and the eternal life that we have in Jesus, to point people to the worthiness of Christ. That's what John did. He pointed others to the worthiness of Jesus. He came and preached repentance. He called Israel to repent of their sin and their idolatry and turn back to God and appeal to his grace and his mercy. And many responded. They came, they were baptized to show that they were sinners, people in need of God's mercy. And the beautiful thing about it is that that mercy had come. 
The mercy had come. The one who baptizes with the Spirit was there. We'll focus more on that next week. But the mercy, as John said in verse 21, it was already among them, even though they didn't know it. God's mercy and grace had come. Jesus had come. And John was there to testify of him. The witness had come to the stand. He pointed his finger to Jesus and said, He, he's the one. Look to him and be saved. He takes away the sin of the world. He's the lamb. He baptizes with the spirit. He must increase and I must decrease. I am unworthy to untie his shoe, but Jesus is worthy of all praise and worship and glory and honor. What a testimony. Why do we give testimonies? We give testimonies, we share our testimonies because we have come to see that God is gracious to us. We give our testimonies not to point others to us and to show how awesome we are, but to point others to the awesome grace that we have been shown in Jesus. And so, friends, I want to ask you two final things this morning. How is it going for you in your testimony? If the transcripts of your testimony were read, what would they say? Would it be compelling? Would people see in your testimony that your hope is in Jesus Christ alone? Not in your good works, not in your comparison with your neighbor, but in Jesus. That you have found him mighty to save. Would the jury be swayed? By your testimony. And obviously, I don't just mean our words. I mean everything. The way we live, the way we love, the way we do church, the way we serve others, the way we point away from ourselves and to the worthiness of Christ, the way we point to his life, his teaching, his death, his sacrifice, his resurrection, and the promise of eternal life to all who believe in him alone. Are you testifying to that today? And I don't mean that as a guilt thing. I, I don't mean it that way. I mean it as an encouraging thing. Let us seek together to do that well. We all testify. You testify. We all give a testimony. And you might think, well, I've, 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 I've not testified. You're testifying. You testify to something. <laughs> we all, and, and, and just look around. I mean, we, we do that with intentionality. Many of you have a curated social media feed. Like, you want people to know who you are, what you're like. All of us want to let people know what we're, we want to testify of something. Oh, that we would testify of Christ. That's what we were born for. You, you were sent here for that purpose, to testify of the one who is mighty to save. To just sweep the ice in front of the stone for others so that they might see Christ. Behold him, trust him, love him. So that's the first question about your testimony. The second question I think is pertinent, that's pertinent to this is, what will you do with this testimony that's presented to you? It, you know, it's as if we're all both the jury and the witnesses this morning. We testify, and then we sit and we look at the testimony of others. What will you do with the testimony of John the Baptist? He lived his life so that you would see Jesus and believe. What will you do with the testimonies you see around you? 
the testimonies of, <coughs> excuse me, of those faithful Christ followers you see loving one another, what will you do with that? The testimony of those who go to foreign lands and lay down their life for the joy of the nations, what will you do with that testimony? What will you do with the testimony that you are about to hear in a moment? Jed Fong is going to come and share how Christ has impacted his life. What will you do with it? I pray that that testimony, the testimony of the saints, the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of the scriptures, I pray that you will find it all very compelling and that you, friend, will look to Christ and find in him the mercy that he offers, the grace that comes from Jesus Christ. He is worthy. He is saving. I pray that you are compelled this morning to those truths. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, often with hearts of stone, which we desire to see you change to hearts of flesh, so that we might find the testimony of the life and the work of Christ compelling that we might turn to him by faith, look to him, away from ourselves, away from our merit, away from our good deeds, and to Jesus alone. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who has not been swayed. Your spirit sways. Would you, would you move this morning to sway us and strengthen all of our resolve to trust in you this morning? And to be a testimony, a powerful witness. Help us to be a powerful witness of your grace and your love and your mercy to a world that needs witnesses. And we pray together for Jed this morning as he comes and he shares his testimony. I pray that you'd help him to be clear. I pray that his testimony would be compelling. Sway our hearts to trust in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, my name is Jed Fong. Uh, my wife Carrie and I are members here. We've been attending Faith since uh, fall of 2018. And I want to thank you for the opportunity to share my testimony. The process has been a huge blessing to me uh, as I reflect back on how much God has worked in my life. My story is not one of... It's not one filled with excitement. In fact, I spent much of my Christian walk wishing that I had some extreme conversion story uh, to which I could point. I was, it was only later in life that I've really grown to appreciate how much God has done in my life. It's my prayer that I may proclaim a remarkable God with this account that for so many years seemed so unremarkable to me. I grew up near... Kearney, Nebraska, in a home that loved the Lord, I made my decision to follow Christ when I was around the age of six, knowing that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. I rededicated my life to God to be sure in fourth grade, and many times after I rededicated my life. When I was in middle school, our church held a baptism service at my grandparents' lake. And it was there that I publicly professed Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior through baptism. In high school, I struggled a lot with my eternal security, 
which continued into my, my early adult years. I spent time in God's word and longed to know him more, but often felt distant from him. I knew that my salvation didn't come from my works, yet I continued to press on, thinking that if I just worked harder, maybe I would feel closer to God. I spent the summer of my senior year working at, uh, for American Missionary Fellowship. We hosted summer camps, vacation Bible schools in south-central Nebraska. This work was rewarding, yet it really served as a distraction from the doubts I still had. I attended college that fall in Kearney and quickly got involved in a campus ministry. I tried to make time for God, but he got the leftovers. Here again, the old enemy of doubt crept in. Was I really a Christian? If so, why didn't my priorities show it? It was during these moments of doubt that I kept coming back to the gospel and what I believed as proclaimed in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But I felt like the father in Mark 9, 14, who said, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, all this time I wasn't doubting the historical accuracy of the Bible. I knew that Jesus really lived and died, and the Bible was without error. I wasn't doubting why Jesus came to earth. He came to reconcile sinners to a holy God. He came to reconcile me to a holy God. I was doubting because I trusted in a holy, perfect God, and I saw myself not measuring up. I wasn't the kind of follower I thought God deserved. He wasn't always first in my life. I would find myself being proud or selfish. I wouldn't take every opportunity to share the gospel. In summary, I wanted a drastic conversion story to look back on so that I could know that God truly did this saving work in my life. I must have a thick skull because it wasn't until my late 20s, mid to late 20s, with two kids before this enemy of doubt was finally defeated. God graciously answered my prayers of assurance. And I was able to see my conversion for the miracle that it was. You want to know how I can be sure that I'm a child of God? Number one, God is trustworthy. If he promises something, it's done. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? He was told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Acts 16.31 Paul didn't say, you will probably be saved, but you will be saved. What an amazing truth. Number two, I believe the gospel. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, was buried, rose from the dead, and sits at the right hand of the Father. I believed it all those times I rededicated my life to God, but more importantly, I believe it right now. Lastly, with children came a new perspective. I recognize that fatherhood is not conditional. And I find it very fitting that Pastor Mike touched on this two weeks ago when he preached on John 1.12, which says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I wasn't going to stop being Hannah's father if she disobeyed me or didn't live up to my perfect standard. I was her dad, and she was my daughter, and that wasn't going to change. In the same way, God is not going to stop being my father if I don't measure up. He is my father, 
and once my father, always my father. This freedom from doubt became such a great blessing. It changed how I served God. In the past, my motives could be tainted with a desire to prove something. But this assurance has freed me to serve God out of love and gratitude for my Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'd like to ask you, what are you trusting in today? Maybe you, like I have, struggle with questions of assurance. Maybe you've looked back on your own works, hoping to see enough change to give you confidence. To that I say, don't look to yourself. Look to Christ, as Acts 4.12 says. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Thank you.